Well, good morning, everyone. How are you? Well, with the weather today, you've all qualified for a job at the post office. You did just fine. Um, last time I preached in a theater auditorium was over 35 years ago. It was the first time I preached. It was the last time I preached in a movie theater up until now. So this is kind of a new experience, but, you know, we got to just flow with it sometimes, don't we? Uh, you know, pastor is away on a, a much-deserved and well-needed rest. And wouldn't you know, somebody asked him to speak while he was gone. <laughs> but, you know, we need to get away, don't we? And, and, you know, he's been at the center of so much of what's going on. I'm, I'm just glad, as Miss King mentioned earlier to me, that he could just get away. Just get away. And last week, he called me on the phone. He said, uh, Bill, you know, we... We need, uh, for next week, Sunday, we need a dynamic, articulate, incredible scholar of the Word of God. But we couldn't get him. So will you preach? And I said, okay, I will. So here I am. So you're stuck with me this morning. I hope to do the Word justice because that's the most important thing. You know, our old friend Howard Hendricks, uh, he used to say, you need another sermon or a teaching like you need a hole in the, another hole in the head. But we all need to hear from the Word of God. And, and so this morning, I want to um, bring a word to you. Can you just turn me down just a bit? I know I got that low thing going on, and it just kind of is ringing up here. Thank you so much. Um, how many of you have heard this phrase? You can lead a horse to water, but... Amen. I want to challenge you this morning... Uh, with that little phrase that we've heard so often. Uh, you know, when I was born into this world, uh, you could reason with somebody with logic. You could explain uh, your side of an argument, and if you did a good job, if uh, what you had to offer was better than what the other person had, you could convince them of things. And you could even convince them to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. But we are no longer living in that kind of world. We have been transported into another world, which sometimes you have heard referred to as the postmodern age. People no longer want a word first. They want to respond not to something that would appeal to the mind and to the will, but they want to hear something that will make them feel a certain way. And, you know, the, we know we shouldn't go by our feelings, but as a point of reference, this is how we have to make contact with people out in the world today if you want to reach them with the gospel. Now, let me read you something. Uh, leading people to Jesus today is a process. A and have you noticed that people don't seem to respond to the thoughtful appeals of, of what you have to say regarding an appeal to the mind or to reason or to their will to get them to act on something, that often you have to tell them a story and they want to see truth in action. They don't want to hear it in word. They want to see it in action. And so the challenge for us has become much greater than it was for our fathers and mothers in the walk of Christ. There's a style of witness that's dead for most people today. Author Greg Pritchard quotes Peter Berger saying, A peculiar mixture of arrogance, I know the truth, 
and benevolence, I want to save you, has always been a chief psychological mark of missionary activity. Folks, even missionaries aren't appealing to people in this form anymore. People in our society can smell that combination a mile away. And as soon as they get a whiff of it, guess what? They're flying away. Amen? Have you gotten used to this? Are are you aware that you, you really have to just stop who you are sometimes to join in on the conversation? That people are more concerned about how you are and how you act, your behavior, than what you have to say before they're ready to be convinced by any argument you're going to present? I don't know about you, but I'm running into that all the time. People are looking first for a community to belong to rather than to a message to listen to. They're looking for a safe place to work out their sense of identity and self. Now, three things. People today want experience before explanation. They want belonging before believing. And the battle for allegiance today is a battle for spiritual and moral imagination. So finally, people want an image before they want the word. Are you with me? Are you tracking with what I'm saying? Now, there's an image that I want to present to you today of how we must be. And it's not something new. It's something that's been around since the beginning of time. It's been spoken of by the writer of Genesis, by the writer of Psalms, David and Solomon. It's been written by Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and all the New Testament writers. And we're going to get to that in a minute. But the world today doesn't want us to tell them about our faith. They want to see our faith in action. I can't say that enough. So would you stand with me as we read the word? How many of you have been joining the study in Exodus? We've got Exodus in the Sunday school next door at the 9 o'clock hour, and you come in here and you get more Exodus. Uh, If you haven't gotten the message, the entire message of the book of Exodus is God telling us that he loves us. If you're missing that, go back and read it, uh, because that's really shadowing the entire book. So having said that about Exodus, turn with me to Ephesians, (laughs) chapter 1. We're not going to read this entire passage because it would just take too long. So we're going to skip around, but you can go ahead and read the whole thing later. But we're going to start in verse 3 of chapter 1 of Ephesians. uh, And if you're there, say amen. 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 Good for you. And uh, if you don't have your Bible, uh, just look over someone else's shoulder. As Pastor always says, the real Christians. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Drop down to verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things upon the earth. A drop down to verse 13. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, 
the gospel of your salvation. Having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith uh, in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of, his, of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now drop down to chapter 2, just a short verse, verse 4. Verse 4 in chapter 2, But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up in him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places, in Christ Jesus, in order that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Let us pray. Father, your word is a lamp unto our feet. Make it come alive to us this morning uh, in a unique way. Father, a word we've heard so often, reinforce it. Plant the seed in our hearts that will help us to be more like you. Show us your ways this morning, I pray, by the work of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, G.K. Chesterton, a charismatic radio personality from the uh, early 20th century, and he was an everyman's theologian, by the way, uh, he was being interviewed out in public one day, and a crowd gathered around him, and somebody asked him a question. They said, G.K., if you were stranded on a deserted island, What's the one book you'd want to have with you? If you could only have one book, what would that be? And G.K. didn't take long to think about it or ponder. He just immediately said, well, the book I'd want if I was stranded on a desert island would be how to get off a desert island when I'm stranded on it. (laughs) And I think that's true of all of us, right? But I'm sure G.K. would probably agree with me this morning if he were here that if he couldn't have that book, this little section of Scripture, this passage, is so full of diamonds and dynamite, it'd be hard to argue against this one as being the only passage you'd want on a desert island. Because it tells us three things quickly, Paul tells us. In verse 3 of chapter 1, it tells us that we are chosen by the Father. In verse 7 and following, it tells us that we're redeemed by the Son. 
And in verse 13 and following, it tells us we're sealed by the Holy Spirit. Okay, amen, that's the end. We don't need any more. Let's close the book and go home right now. You don't need anything else, right? If you've got those three things, that's all you have to have. Well, wait a second. You know, scholars tell us that uh, the letter to the Ephesians was written to a group that probably had no real major internal sins or issues. There wasn't any kind of a catastrophe going on. Uh, but if we look a little closer, you might see that there's more there than what most people believe. The last word on the Ephesian church you'll find is in the book of Revelation. And in the book of Revelation, Jesus is telling John to tell the church at Ephesus that while I admire you, I admire you for the things you are doing, this one thing I have against you, you have lost your love for your first love. And Paul is saying, you know, the things you're doing are great, wonderful. But guess what? In the whole process of working things out, you've lost the most important thing, which is love for me and love for each other. You know, it's interesting in this book of Ephesians, 35 times it's mentioned the phrase, in Christ. 35 times. And the books, Paul tells us he wants the church to strive for one thing, unity, oneness, understanding one another. Now, the first thing, mentioning in Christ 35 times, goes to identity. Now, the second thing, striving to be in unity, goes towards our ultimate goal as a body in Christ, uh, as well as our behavior. Our behavior is to show the unity. Doesn't the Bible tell us, by this they will know you? that you love one another. So there's something going on here, because in the verses, or the, the little bit right after uh, verse 13 in chapter 1, Paul says, hey, I'm praying for you. And guess what I'm praying for? I'm praying that you will have a revelation, and you will have wisdom on three things. Hope, the riches you have, your inheritance, and the glory of the power of God that has been vested, invested in you. You guys don't have a full picture of who you are in Christ. Now, let me get to my first point real quick, because I, I want to just say these three things and get to the third point uh, quickly. Number one, if you're writing things down, the gospel is never presented in a vacuum. The gospel is never presented in a vacuum. Jesus has no problem with anybody on the face of the earth throughout history and all time. He has no problem or any fear of us comparing what he says with what anyone else says and his life that he wants for us with any kind of life the world offers us. Are you hearing me? Now, most of us learn, we get educated by comparing things. It's just a natural human process that we go through. I have a friend who's an architect. Uh, he's no longer with us, but the guy was brilliant. He could walk around any house, and without going inside of it, he could design the whole layout of the house, all the rooms, first floor, second floor, basement. And he could put it down on paper, give you a bird's eye view, and you'd go in that house, and you'd say, wow, that's amazing. 
But most of us are not like that. Most of us look at a house, we drive by it all the time, and we have to go into it. And when we get in that house, we look around, we go, oh, so this is what it looks like around here. I would have never imagined this. Yeah, this is pretty cool. Or, hey, boy, this isn't the great house I thought it was going to be. Isn't that how most of us are? And Jesus knows we're no different when it comes to the gospel about becoming part of the family of God. Most of us don't really know what it's like and what it means to be a Christian until after we become one. Amen? Some of us are even saying, boy, if I'd have known it was going to be this rough. Right? If I would have known, I would be struggling like this. You know, I didn't know what temptation was before, right? Because you just did whatever you wanted, right? You're just minding your own business, and you were like the world. You said, hey, truth is truth for you. I've got my truth. You've got your truth. Uh, No worries. No problems, right? But when you became a Christian, now you're comparing. You're comparing your old life with your new life. You're comparing what Jesus says with what everybody else is saying. And that's how we learn. You got it? And these people in Ephesus were no different than us. I want you to imagine, if you go to Ephesus now, it's nothing but a bunch of ruins because they had a problem with silt always covering over the harbor so that the boats couldn't get in. But at one time, Ephesus was the jewel of Asia Minor, which is now present-day Turkey. In Ephesus, there was the eighth wonder of the world. It was the Temple of Diana, or Artemis, if you're Greek. And this place was so huge, so big, that in its amphitheater, 50,000 people could fit in there. It was something to behold. It brought tourism to Ephesus. And let me tell you, there were a lot of magicians and sorcerers and divinations, all kinds of things, harlotry, all kinds of sacrifices going on when it came to temple worship at the Temple of Diana. But even the economy and the politics were wrapped up in the idolatry of Ephesus. The money, the money flowing through the temple of Artemis was so great that the treasury of the entire Asia Minor province was held in that temple. And so imagine if you're an Ephesian and you get saved, you come to the Lord, Paul spent Three years there once, witnessing to people, sharing the gospel. Paul's gone now. In fact, when Paul writes this letter, guess where he is? He's in prison. He's in shackles. And the first time he came to Ephesus, he had a hard time there. So now these people are looking around. They see the riches of all that they gave up. They're no longer selling little idols. They're no longer part of the normal conversation of everybody in Ephesus. They walk around and they see great names up on Ephesus, Ephesus all, edifices all over. They go, man, I'm serving a savior that was put on a cross. My mentor is in prison. These people were living in spiritual poverty. They were comparing who they were now with what they used to have and who they used to be. So you follow me? Second point I want to tell you is that sitting at the feet of Jesus is not being inactive, but it is interactive. The Bible here, Paul tells us 
that we are seated in heavenly places. Can you contemplate that? There's a guy, George Eldon Ladd, that made the phrase popular already, but not yet. We are receiving many of the blessings of heaven already, but we're not all the way there yet. The work of Christ is finished at the cross and resurrection, but guess what? It's not consummated yet until his second coming. But in the meantime, we are seated in heavenly places. Do you ever scratch your head and you wonder, what does that mean? Well, let me tell you, every day, every moment of the day, we have an opportunity to just sit at the feet of Jesus. And Paul shows us three positions in the book of Ephesus. We're to stand firm. But before you can stand firm in the faith, you need to learn to walk in the faith. Before you can walk in the faith, guess what you got to do? You have to sit at the feet of Jesus. Now, I know pastor said a couple of weeks ago, the most common place for us to worship is not kneeling, not seated, but standing. But the most common place for all Christians to be when we're trying to grow and mirror the image of Christ is to sit at his feet. And there's no better place than that. Now, you are not being inactive when you're sitting here even. You are being interactive. You're trying to ask yourself, how does this word apply to me? And when we go out in the world and people witness us, they want to know how do we and what we have to say and what we're doing apply to them. Now, how many of you here like fishing? I can't stand fishing. There's nothing more boring to me than than fishing, except for watching people fishing on TV. That's even more boring. Yeah, golf. Golf is up there with that. Golf. I go out and I golf a little bit here and there. But, you know, golf is not a good comparison here or illustration, but fishing is. Now, let me tell you something that I've seen in fishing that I think is actually really beautiful, graceful. How many of you know what fly casting is? You ever see fly casting? Uh, There's a movie with Brad Pitt, A River Runs Through It, you know, and and you watch these guys. And, you know, I began to read about fly fishing. Oh, it's a little big. Can you see that? You know what that is? It's a Right, it's a fly. (laughs) Otherwise, right, a lure. Somebody said a lure. It lures the fish. Now, I found out that guys who love to do uh, fly fishing, they make their own lures. They really get into it, man. They, they get in their garage or their basement, and they're making these lures. And, and also, when they're out there, you have to be really smart. It looks like they're doing nothing except throwing a rod around and just causing that string that... that whatever it's called, it's not line, thank you. <laughs> you see their line just essing through the sky, moving all around. Did you know that the fish they're after are really smart? They're close to the top of the water, and they can see everything. And so it looks simple, but these fly fishers, they have to go somewhere where the fish can't see them. And they try to, the fish are all pointing a certain way. They try to get behind the fish. And from far away, they're just casting. They're just casting that line. And it's a beautiful thing. And they're not just sitting still like a fisherman in a boat, drinking a beer, drinking a bud. 
I know you never do that, Sylvester. Uh, we're not talking about you. He mentioned fishing this morning in Sunday school. But the thing is, when we're sitting with Jesus, we're a lot like that fly fisherman. We are being interactive with him. There's a dance going on. And I hope you love the dance. Now, the third point I want to make is that the only Jesus people will ever see is you. The only Jesus people will ever see is you. Now, you don't want to look like a lure. That's kind of ugly. That's kind of not going to attract humans. In a moment, I want to show you a picture of what we're to look like if we want to attract people to Jesus. Because let me state very clearly here, and if you're writing anything down, this is what I want you to write down most of all. We are not to beat people over the head with the truth. We're to lead people to the truth. Don't beat them over the head with it. Lead them to the truth. We're not the truth. We don't have the final word on the truth. But Jesus has the final word on the truth. I want to read a passage to you from Ezekiel. This is a powerful passage. One that I, frankly, just discovered a a year ago or so. But Ezekiel is proclaiming from the Lord judgment upon Israel. But right in the midst of this judgment that God is proclaiming on Israel, he says, God wants to remind you of when he first found you. He wants to tell you about our relationship that he wanted to have with us. And let me just read that passage. It's chapter 16 of Ezekiel. I'm not going to read the whole thing. But he uses the illustration of a baby being born. And the baby is so fresh that even the umbilical cord has not been snipped yet. And the body of this infant, you can imagine what it looks like. When I saw my son first born, it was the most beautiful thing, but it was the most ugliest thing I've ever seen. He was just covered in this, it was like he came out of Ghostbusters, and there was this slime all over him and this blood and everything. It just looked nasty. But let me read you a passage from Ezekiel 16. When I passed by you and saw you squirming in your blood, I said to you while you were in your blood, live. I said to you while you were in your blood, live. I made you numerous like plants of the field. Then you grew up, became tall, and reached the age for fine ornaments. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. Then I passed by you, and I saw you, and behold, you were at the time for love. So I spread my skirt over you and covered your nakedness. I also swore to you and entered into a covenant with you so that you became mine, declares the Lord God. Then I bathed you with water, washed off your blood from you, and anointed you with oil. I also clothed you with embroidered cloth and put sandals of porpoise skin on your feet. And I wrapped you with fine linen and covered you with silk. And I adorned you with ornaments, put bracelets on your hands and a necklace around your neck. I also put a ring in your nostril, earrings in your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver, and your dress was of fine linen, silk, and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour, honey, and oil. So you were exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. Then your family went forth among the nations on account of your beauty, for it was perfect because of my splendor, which I bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. 
What an incredible word picture. And this is God's intent for his people all along. To make us his. Man, there's no better place than becoming his. Amen? All of us know that here, (laughs) I hope. So let me show you a picture of what we're supposed to look like. Some guys may have a problem with this. I know I used to. Bride. Bride. I don't want to look like no bride. But the older I get in the Lord, the more I learn. I started to realize how little I looked like his bride. You know, when we get saved, we're washed by the blood of the Lamb. We're sanctified. And we're filled with the Holy Spirit. We are clean in his sight. But there's also a whole lot that comes after that that we have to learn, right? We have to begin to live within our sanctified state. They often call that progressive sanctification. But you know, how many of you, when you're driving down the street on a nice summer Saturday afternoon, you could see the crowd out in front of a church somewhere? You're not looking for the groom. Who cares about the groom, right? They're all looking for the bride. You may even see the groom. Oh, I don't care about that groom. I want to see the bride. The bride. Sylvester, you did good. You did real good. (laughs) I don't know if they're clapping for you or Deborah. But anyway, the thing about Jesus is that no one ever gets to see the groom in this life. Until he returns, the only way they get to see the groom is through you, the bride. Now, I'm going to close with this. You can leave that up there uh, for me, Mike. We must first be the good news before we can tell the good news. The thing about looking like this, having this image in our minds that this is the way we want to present ourselves to bring glory to God, is that it's attractive and it is relevant to the world around us. You see, they see so many things, they hear so many things, but they want a story that's not only true and real, but one that they can find attractive and find relevant, that brings harmony and unity to their life. Let me tell you quickly some things that this picture represents to me. First thing is, it represents risk-reward. Risk-reward. You know, it takes a leap of blind faith to get married, especially today. How many of you heard this statistic that just as many people who call themselves Christians are getting divorced as non-Christians. But you know, that, that's a fallacy because if they were to ask this question, how many of you who are totally committed to the Lord Jesus Christ, how many of those kind of people get divorced, you'd see the divorce rate drop significantly, dramatically. It would go way down. But there is a risk in getting married. Just ask my wife. <laughs> I remember before we got married, we sent out the invitations, and we were over at uh, my mother-in-law's house, 
and she gets a phone call. Uh, one of her friends, co-workers, uh, got an invitation, and they were talking on the phone. And her friend says to her, um, Blonsky, Blonsky, is he white? And Brenda's mother said, no, he's Polish. <laughs> you think that's funny. The funniest thing was the reply from her friend on the phone. She then went, oh, okay. <laughs> well, almost 35 years later, here we are. It's been a real ride. It's been, yeah, clap for her. Clap for her. But there was a risk. There was a fear. But we couldn't let fear rule. It took a step of blind faith. Trusting in God more than trusting in each other. We've made it. But the thing is, what draws people to this is the, op the other side of risk. There's a reward, or what I would like to call adventure. And let me tell you, it's been an adventure being married to Brenda. I mean that in the best way, dear. It's been an adventure, but there's nothing like the adventure that we experience when we take the risk in Jesus. After all, he takes a risk in us all the time. His gospel is for all mankind. So people will see that and be drawn to it. The second thing is relationship. I see relationship here in this picture. And that goes to connectedness. People are looking for a group to feel safe in. Before people are ever going to come to the Lord, they want to get in an environment where they feel secure enough to find out who they are. There's so many people who are isolating themselves now that you go to a dinner table at a restaurant and all the kids are on their little games. The wife is on her iPad and the husband's on the phone. I mean, it's crazy. And so people are alone somewhere, even when they're together. But the only way they're going to find out their identity is rubbing shoulders and elbows with other people. But before they're going to rub elbows with us, they got to feel safe. But they want to be connected, so they see relationship. The third thing is they see celebration here in this picture. And below the celebration is a real joy, a real joy. Just like coming to Jesus, when you get married, there's joy. I hope that people here who are engaged right now, that they don't think that the wedding is, okay, the wedding's over, now what? I hope you see that as a springboard to a whole new relationship, a whole new way of life, a whole new way of connectedness. Boy, I want to tell you, Brenda and I, when we first got married, it was about a year or two before we had our first child, and it was bliss. It was great. But when that first child comes out, your world will change. So all of you who are thinking about getting married here, uh, getting married is fantastic. Having kids, that's when the hard part comes. But there's still even joy in that. I wouldn't trade my relationship with my kids and the journey we were on for anything. And that leads me to the last thing is this represents a journey. When you see a bride, she's stepping out into a new life. There's something new going to happen here. New seeds are planted. And you're going to grow in a different way. Your life, it tells us in Genesis, you're no longer two, but you are one. You are intertwined. And this goes to direction. What people see in this new life, in this journey, is direction. 
And people, whether they agree with you, not verbally, deep down inside of them, there's a hunger for direction. People are wanting to know, where did I come from? Where am I going? Why am I here? And this picture answers all those things for all of us. Amen? So how do we get to this place where we look like this? That's the easy part. Real easy. You're going to love this. First, just remember that we are seated in the heavenlies with our Lord and Savior. If we just spend more time sitting at the feet of Jesus, as we bask in his presence, we'll become more like him. I can't think of anything we do that's more organic than that. The whole church, the institutional side of the church, should be doing one thing to work towards this. is trying to get us to see that all of us need to produce more love for God and for each other. When we begin to mirror that, now we're getting somewhere. The second thing I want to tell you is respond when the Holy Spirit brings people into your life who are in a crisis, who are needy, who are going through a transition in life. Now, I know the phone rings, and you're at home, Willie, right? And you go, oh, I know who that is. I don't want to answer it. I don't want to answer it. When you feel that anxiety, that could be the Holy Spirit. Why is that person calling you? Or your neighbor is going through a calamity. And you go, oh, I got enough problems of my own. I, 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 I can't deal with anyone else's problems right now. Oh, zingo. That could be the Holy Spirit. Now, you've got to protect yourself. There's only so much you can do. But maybe God is putting those people in front of you because this is an area where God is going to most glorify himself. When the bride of Christ shows itself to the world. Brothers and sisters, the wedding gown is our armor. I know that Paul says that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, chapter 6. We wrestle against principalities and powers in the air. And he says, put on your full armor. But let me tell you, if you put on armor like a Roman soldier, you're not going to witness to anybody. When you put up your barriers, they're going to put up their barriers. The wedding dress is our armor. Amen? Stand with me, will you? God is so good. Thank you for your ears this morning. But God wants our hearts. God wants all of us. When we totally surrender to him, and spend time with him, we'll look more like the bride of Christ. Let's pray. Father, you're worthy to be praised, to be glorified and magnified. I ask you now, Father, help all of us, me included, to mirror the image of Christ not only on Sunday, but Monday through Saturday. Lord, be with us where the rubber hits the road. We run into so many people throughout the week and they're hurting and they need a word but they need a hand they need encouragement they need to see something someone who's attractive 
and who is relevant to their life. Father, there's no one more relevant than you. So put a desire to spend time with you, a desire to know your will, your perfect will for us. Your word says that we should pray that lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Father, take us right into the heart of where you want to move, where you want to be glorified, and that's mostly in other people's lives. Someone once said the church is the only outfit that was meant to minister to those who are not inside the walls, but outside the walls. Lord, let that be our prayer. Let us go from this place today armed with a full array of armor, with a necklace, with earrings, with a veil, and a gown to most mirror you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Be lifted
Just say Jesus. That a wonderful name of Jesus. Oh, Jesus. Jesus. Just say that name. Just sing Jesus. No other name I know. No other name I know. Sticking closer than a brother. It's not that heavy. 
want to bother God with this. I can take it. I can carry it. This is a little thing. And before you know it, you're carrying something else and something else and something else and something else. Then the question comes not how much does it weigh, but why are you carrying it? we do not carry everything not some things not a few things not the things that are too big for me in our minds everything First Peter 5 7, 7 says cast all of your cares on him because he cares for you if we could get how much he loves us you right now the enemy doesn't care about your little blessing that you're praying for the enemy could care less about your health or that job or that child he wants your faith if he can get you to bow your knee to that circumstance if he can get you to cast your care to him and say you know what this is too big for my God that he's after. He already knows God is going to bless us. So with our faith, we rise up. With our faith, we reach up. With our faith, we connect to someone bigger than us. God, Jehovah, who is our salvation, who is our joy, who is our strength, who is our everything. Then we stand united. Then we realize what he's been trying to tell us. If you turn your eyes upon Jesus, what's the song say? Look full in his wonderful face. And what happens? All the things of this earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. Glory to God. Give him praise. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord.